today with us we have Jack Lukeman, who is the Federal Benefits Officer at the U.S. Embassy in London. And Jack has come to speak about Social Security and Medicare and, and how it relates to people living abroad and um, living in the U.S. who maybe worked abroad in the past and all flavors of that. Uh, prior to me handing it off to Jack, I'm going to also hand it off to uh, David Costello, who's a partner and advisor with Tanager, who's just going to give a brief foreword. And uh, we will ask that we save all questions until the end of the webinar. There is a Q&A function at the bottom of uh, your view if you're logged on via the computer. You can use that to put forth questions uh, to myself or Jack or Dave anonymously. It will just come to the panelists. Uh, you can also check a box, I believe, at the bottom that says, uh, please make yourself anonymous uh, to the panelists even. So it will just come in as an anonymous user. So feel free to check that if you don't want your name associated with the question, though Jack will not read anyone's names just for privacy's sake anyway. So I'll go ahead and hand it off to Dave and I will come back towards the Q&A. Thanks. Great. Uh, thanks, Kyle. And thanks, everybody, for joining. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you may be in the world, we have uh, saw some registrants from uh, lots of different countries. So thank you for joining us. And thank you for your, your donation to the World Health Organization. Every little bit helps. Uh, we have a very knowledgeable speaker on the topic of Social Security. We saw Jack speak at a uh, event uh, in the fall, back when people could still go outside. And um, it was a packed house because it is an important topic. Um, so Jack's been with the Social Security Administration for over 20 years and is an expat, like many of us. He lives here in London. So Social Security is, uh, is really important. Uh, when I became an advisor 20 odd years ago, I was taught the metaphor that uh, there's a retirement stool and Social Security is one of the three legs and without it, the, the stool would, would come tumbling down. Uh, in the last 20 to 30 years as private company final salary pensions have faded into all but a memory, more of the responsibility has fallen to us or to the, the saver to uh, shoulder the burden of their own retirement. Uh, throughout all that though, Social Security still persists and it can be a vital piece of your retirement income. But um, like any game, um, financial matters and, and financial questions come down to a good understanding of the rules. And if you don't understand the rules, then you might make a, a wrong decision. So um, Jack is here to uh, shine a light on the rules and answer any questions that you might have so that you can navigate the system. And, and make the decisions that best uh, for you and your family. So um, with that, we'll just hand it over to Jack. And I guess if, you, if, if your question is not answered today and you would like further information, I know that he'll be providing some information on how to get in touch, but your uh, Tanager advisor stands by and is ready as well. So uh, thanks a lot, Jack. No, thank you everybody. And um, you know, thank you to uh, Dave and Kyle for having me today. I'll admit this is my first ever webinar, so hopefully it goes, our first ever live webinar, so hopefully it goes okay. Um, a couple caveats as we broadcast from Studio NW8. I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old who have been asked to be their best quiet, but if there's any background noise, I apologize. Um, and we'll just get into it. Before, before we started uh, the broadcast today, Kyle did send us some questions that, you, that some of you had submitted. So... I'm going to kind of work those into the presentation as we go on, um, but then, you know, we'll have a chance to hit other questions and there'll be contact information at the end if you do want to send in detailed questions. Um, 
generic questions I'll be pretty good at, but detailed questions I'll probably push to another day. Um, the presentation today is kind of set up for residents of the United Kingdom, be them American citizens or US or British citizens. But a lot of the concepts that we're going to talk about transfer to most of the other European countries too. And that will come in most specifically when we talk about the arrangements for totalization agreements and kind of our relationship with DWP in the UK. But, you know, if you're from another country and you have a question, we'll talk about how to kind of get that country specific guidance as we proceed. Um, as we start, I want to talk a little bit about social security benefits in the United Kingdom. And I do this for two reasons. First of all, I think it's interesting. But second of all, I think it highlights how many people that live in the United Kingdom get benefits. And it's a good reminder that if you've worked in the United States and paid into Social Security at all, there's probably some benefits there for you. And that it's not an uncommon thing for people that live in the UK that work in the US to get Social Security benefits. In a live audience, I would do this kind of game show style and ask you for a guess. But as you can see on the screen, we have about 38,000 beneficiaries currently receiving Social Security benefits in the United Kingdom. And in general, they're, they break into two groups. They're either US citizens who, for whatever reason, worked in the US and then moved out to the United Kingdom. Maybe it was early in their work career. Maybe it was for retirement. Maybe it was associated with the military posting or a job assignment, whatever, Americans that have moved here. But everything I'm going to talk about also applies to UK citizens and other citizens who went to the United States, worked there for a defined period of time, and came back. If you live in the United Kingdom, for all practical purposes, the social security you get doesn't really care if you're a US citizen or a British citizen. It's going to be the same for everybody. And that's going to really matter when we talk about not only retirement benefits, but also spouses' benefits, widows' benefits, children's benefits, and the like. Um, so, the first thing is, of those 38,000 people who get benefits, about 25,000 of them are getting just straight retirement benefits. Um, beyond that, we have about 500 people who get disability benefits, but the number that always surprises people is the next number. We have 11,700 people who get either spouse's benefits, so they are the spouse of somebody that lived in the U.S. and worked, or widows or widowers benefits. So somebody, you know, whose spouse that lived and worked in the U.S. had passed away. And we also have about 700 people who get children's benefits. The average benefit amount is $750, but that can be the whole spectrum. It can be on the high end where people, you know, worked at or above the max in the United States for 35 or 40 years, and maybe they're getting $3,000 a month. Or it could be people that worked in the United States for just for a, a year or two, and maybe they're getting $50 a month. But all told, in the United Kingdom, Social Security pays out $28 million per month. And in all honesty, it's probably much more than that. We probably have lots of expats that live in the United Kingdom, but we have US mailing addresses. Um, we're gonna break this presentation into three sections, and I'm gonna try my best to stick inside the sections, um, because for a webinar, I don't wanna kind of diverge too much, but we're gonna talk about retirement benefits first. Then we're gonna talk about other benefits that aren't retirement benefits. So the disability benefits, spouses benefits, widows benefits, and children's benefits. And then at the end, we're going to kind of bring it back and talk about Medicare benefits. 
Um, so some of the stuff I'm going to talk about for retirement benefits will bring in Medicare questions, but just kind of hang tight and bear with me while we work through the benefits. Then we'll have more of a detailed conversation about Medicare. So for retirement benefits, how much did you have to work and earn in the U.S.? And, you know, what's the rules for getting benefits if you worked in the U.S.? And kind of common knowledge is, or the common understanding people have is to get U.S. Social Security benefits for retirement, you had to have earned 40 quarters of coverage. And that essentially means 10 years of work. One of the main takeaways I want you to have from this is, though, is that is not really true. Um, we have an agreement, we call them a totalization agreement, you'll hear them called equalization agreements, but they're partnership arrangements where as long as you lived and worked and paid a combination of 10 years or 40 quarters in the United States and in the United Kingdom, you're potentially going to be eligible for some cash benefits. You have to have earned, you have to have worked in the United States enough to earn six quarters of coverage. That's the minimum to get something in Social Security benefits. Now, at its most extreme example, a person could make six quarters of coverage in two days. You know, if you worked a job, you know, maybe you're an entertainer or something, you worked on December 31st and you worked on January 1st, and you could have earned four quarters in one year, two quarters in the other, maybe you have enough work to get you a Social Security benefits. That's a hyperbolic example, but the point I want to make on that is, is if you worked at all in the United States and paid into Social Security, you really want to look in to see if you are eligible for benefits at all. Um, all the time, every month, every year, we will talk to an 80-year-old at the embassy in London who will just kind of ask us on a lark, hey, am I eligible for Social Security benefits? And lots of times the answer is yes, but when somebody comes to us when they're 80, we can go back six months to pay somebody, but we cannot go back 10 years or even a year to pay them. So the one thing I want you to take away from this, and we'll talk about how to get this information, is, is if you've worked at all in the United States, you do want to have an understanding of if you're eligible for Social Security benefits or not. The other thing to know is that the number, this thing where I'm talking about six quarters minimum to get Social Security, 40 quarters to get kind of regular full social security, that's for cash. For Medicare, and this is a very important distinction that will tie into a lot of our Medicare discussion, you have to have the 40 quarters of coverage. So the six quarters of coverage, so anything between six and 39, you're gonna be eligible for cash. But if you're interested in getting medical coverage when you go back to the US, that won't apply. Um, so that's kind of how it works. So. For Social Security, and I won't get into this in a lot of detail, it's really you get back what you pay and pay out. So, um, you know, the more you paid and contributed into Social Security, the higher your benefit's going to be. At the same time, it's weighted to give lower income wage earners more money than higher income wage earners. It's progressive in that sense, but there's not really a good rule of thumb for how much you're going to get. And I, even in a live audience, I would caution you, you know, don't, I can't answer anything hypothetical that says, well, I worked for 10 years. It's complex. Um, so if you want to know how much you're going to get, we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, kind of one of the most common questions we get is when to file for benefits. And 
what, what should I do and do I have any counseling? And under a webinar, I absolutely don't have any counseling, but it really is a very personal individual decision for you. Um, if the money would, you know, as a general rule, I would say, as you're looking at your eligibility, waiting versus not waiting depends a lot on when you need the money now. But so the first question is, is when's the earliest a person can get their social security benefits? And even though our full retirement age is creeping up higher and higher, for people retiring now at 66 to get a full benefit, for people, um, uh, Gen Xers like me and beyond at 67 to get benefits, anybody can start to receive benefits at 62. So 62 is kind of the first benchmark of when you can start to get benefits. The full retirement age is going to vary a little bit based on the year that you were born. If you're looking at it now, it's probably 66. If you're looking at it in the future, it's somewhere between 66 and 67. If you're curious what your full retirement age is, if you go to Google and just type in full retirement age for Social Security, instantly something will pop up either from socialsecurity.gov or elsewhere that lets you type in your date of birth and it will tell you that. So benchmark one is 62. Benchmark two is, six, is probably 66, between 66 and 67. And then the latest you would want to take your social security benefits is at 70. And what happens is that between 62 and 70, it's kind of a continuum. The longer you wait, the benefits go up more and more month by month. So at 62, you would get between 70 and 75% of your full retirement benefit. That goes up incrementally every month between 62 and when you hit your full retirement age. If you wait after your full retirement age, it will also go incrementally higher for what we call delayed retirement credits, where Social Security will give you money to wait. Those delayed retirement credits stop at 70. So there's never a good reason to not take Social Security at 70. After that, it's costing you money. Um, and then there's a lot of personal stuff that comes into play. So between 62 and your full retirement age, if you were working in the United Kingdom, you probably can't get benefits. However, starting at your full retirement age, all the way for the rest of your benefits career, um, you can kind of work full time and still get your full social security benefits. And then there's a lot of other considerations and, and that can be anything and that can be personal lifestyle, but it could also be, you know, maybe I'm eligible for widows or widowers benefits on one person's record, but then I've also worked on my own. How can I optimize those benefits that's where things start to get a little bit tricky because some types of benefits we let you optimize. You know, we can let you, you know, you can hold on to widow's benefits and take your own. Some benefits we don't let you optimize like spouse's benefits. So it can be really complex. Knowing those benchmark dates, what I would tell you is as you approach retirement benefits, you're gonna wanna reach out to Social Security or our federal benefits unit at the embassy or do some of your research at socialsecurity.gov and kind of find that information out. Um, because it's complex. But if you take away two things from that bullet is 62 is the earliest, never wait any longer than 70. And when in doubt, ask. I mean, there's more and more, you know, media articles about when to take Social Security. And a lot of that advice is good, but to a degree that also kind of muddies the water some. So um, when in doubt, you know, ask us, do some more research or talk to, you know, talk to other people to kind of get some guidance on that. Um, how do I find out what I can get in Social Security? And for those of us living in the UK, 
this can seem to be a challenging problem. Um, one of the things that comes up is that if you live in the United States, you can establish a My Social Security account. And what a My Social Security account does is it lets you go in, log into your computer, go to your own account, and find out in real time what your benefit estimate is. And so you can pull that up, you can put it into calculators, and you can start to do some of that fine-tuned planning. The Social Security Online account, though, can be tricky if you're an expat. Um, and you may not be able to sign up for an account. So what I would tell anybody is go to socialsecurity.gov and see if you can sign in for an, an, up for an account. If you can't, here are some of the things that I would consider trying. Um, and it comes into two pieces. Part of it is where are you trying to sign up from? And then the other part is, is do you have a good U.S. credit history? Because part of the process by which we validate who you are is asking questions from your credit record. So if you go in to try to set up a My Social Security account and it doesn't work, maybe you can't even get in the front door because of your IP address, here are a couple of considerations. First of all, I would say try it from a US IP address via VPN. Maybe you're visiting family members in the States or you know, you're there for work. Try to sign up for it from a US IP address computer. The next thing I would tell you after you do that is, is if you have a mailing address that's secure, like a family member, parents, mother, father, that's in the US, you can use the US mailing address in the process of signing up for the My Social Security account. So we're not going to say that's your permanent address and Social Security and the IRS aren't going to hold you to that, but for signing up for the account, you can do that. And that will matter because they will send you a letter to confirm your account that you'll need to enter the code to get your account when you're there. Um, and then that I would say the same thing for telephone numbers. If you do those things, then it's going to ask you some credit verification questions. You know, what kind of cars have you had? Where have you lived? If you can answer those, that should meet what you need to open a My Social Security account. Now, couple things are going to get in the way of that. If you've been out here for 40 years or 30 years or whatever point in time, that's not going to necessarily work because you're not going to have enough credit for Experian or TransUnion or whoever we get the questions from to answer it. And then maybe you don't have a good U.S. mailing address. Those are some things that could kind of get in the way. Um, we can help you sign up for My Social Security accounts, but it has to be live and face-to-face -face at the embassy. So maybe the next time you're coming in to get a new passport, you could call the Federal Benefits Union and say, hey, I'm coming in to get a passport. Can you also help me sign up for a My Social Security account? And we'll see what we can do. The other thing I will say on this is, this is a priority to Social Security. They, it's a known problem that if you live overseas, you can't get My Social Security accounts. The challenge that they've been trying to fix is they're not comfortable with an online way to authenticate somebody without using the Experian process. And the restrictions for getting your accounts are to stop people from stealing your identity to get access to that information. But I say that to say, if you tried it now and it doesn't work, try again in six months. You know, try again in a year because it's an organic process where I'm hopeful at some point in time, at least in the next, in my career, we'll see the opportunity for you to sign up for those online. Um, and as I said in the last bullet, you know, the London Federal Benefits Unit is here to answer any questions you have. 
Now, I did get some questions that came in in advance of the call. We, one of them was talking about the totalization agreement where we combine your, your work covered under DWP and Social Security. Again, if that ties into 40 quarters total, you're probably fine. I would stress, don't try to do that math on your own. You know, don't self-exclude yourself and say, well, I only think I have three quarters in the U.S. or I only think I work under DWP for five years. When in doubt, file the claim and ask. The worst we're gonna do is tell you no. We'd rather tell 20 people no than have to talk to that one 80-year-old who it could have been yes for years. And then the other question related to Medicare, just remember, 40 is a firm number for Medicare. Um, so there's that. Um, I had a question about tax status. I don't have anything to tell you about tax status. You're gonna get your social security benefits. At the end of the year, you're gonna get a 1099. You'll get the 1099 and that will go into your tax portfolio just like everything else. Maybe your social security is subject to tax, maybe it's not. A lot of it depends on what your overall income is. Um, and that's, you know, how you incorporate that. Do you file at 62 versus 66 versus 70? And what are the tax implications on that? What I would tell you is that's something that you need to talk to your accountants and your wealth managers about. I don't have any good guidance for you on that. Um, back to the totalization piece, a couple of people asked, can you buy credits or move credits? It doesn't really work that way. What happens is, is if you worked in the US for nine years, and we need to get credit for one year from the United Kingdom, we'll send DWP, Division of Work and Pensions, a request, and they'll tell us that the person worked in the UK for 20 years. All we do is that's an informational account. Those credits stay with DWP. We just say because you've had those credits, you can get it for US, but it doesn't have any negative effect directly on your US Social Security. Now, when DWP becomes aware that you get Social Security, or when Social Security becomes aware that you get a pension from DWP or, a, or an employer in the United Kingdom, one could affect the other, but they really work as independent pensions based on their own rules. We just information share to see if you meet the uh, benefits under the agreements. And then that brings me to kind of the last pre-submitted question we had, and that was about the windfall elimination provision. And I could talk about the windfall elimination provision for a webinar all by itself. But what the windfall elimination provision says is, if you get a pension for any job that did not pay into Social Security, that pension could offset your Social Security benefit amount. And it might, and it might not. There's a lot of things that kind of tie into that. The idea being is that people who worked in the United States for their whole lives and had lower income jobs, maybe a minimum wage job, like in a retail capacity or service capacity, they get a higher return on what they've paid into Social Security than somebody that has earned at or near the maximum. The windfall elimination provision seeks to equalize that because the earnings record of a person who worked in the U.S. for five or 10, for 10 years or 15 years looks like a lower income wage record when you look at the totality of their earnings, so it offsets it. That's a thumbnail description of what WEP is and why it exists. Here's the guidance I would give you on that. Social Security has a really good fact sheet on WEP. It's called the Windfall Elimination Provision. So if you go to socialsecurity.gov, type in Windfall Elimination Provision, that fact sheet will come up. 
I believe there's also a good calculator there. If you take the information from your benefit estimate, type it into a calculator, it will give you the WEP result. Um, it has to take your kind of your full lifetime earnings record to do that. And then it will, it will kind of give you that output. But the big thing I would say is I wouldn't let the windfall elimination provision calculations play too large of a piece into deciding when to take your benefits. And that kind of goes with what I talked about earlier. I'm not going to be able to give you in a webinar context specific numbers, but the numbers are going to be what the numbers are going to be. And the percentages are going to be the same WEP, totalization, maximum earnings, lower earnings, or whatever. So I, I would just know that it's out there. Know that what you get from a benefit estimate from Social Security doesn't include WEP. But once again, there are WEP calculators out here. And one thing I missed about benefit estimates in Social Security Online is if you can't get into a My Social Security account, you can request via paper a benefit estimate yourself. There's a form called an SSA 7004, 7004. If you fill that out, you send it to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, they will send you back a paper benefit estimate statement that's like the ones that sometimes come out automatically, but you can do that 100 times if you want. So you can get it, it will allow you to type in hypotheticals about when you wanna retire, and it will send back to you a letter that would give you what you would be able to see at Social Security Online. So that's what I have on kind of as an overview of retirement benefits. And, you know, I'll throw it open. Dave, is, does that make sense? Or even just for you, do any questions come up that maybe I can address right now? Um, no, that's pretty good. I was just looking at, there's some, some easy ones about perhaps the, the minimum age. There were some more questions in there about um, uh, WEP and voluntary contributions to NI. Um, yeah, so you can't voluntarily pay into Social Security. So the idea of buying quarters of coverage is something that doesn't exist. So in, in other countries that you can do that, but in the United States, you can only get Social Security through FICA wages, so you've been issued a W-2, or through self-employment earnings where you have filed a self-employment tax return. If you're working over here, your employment relationship will determine if you can get, you know, if you're going to get a W-2. The one thing I would say is if you're like at that 39 quarters and the difference between 40 matters, what I would say is that's not time to talk to your accountant to see if you can file a self-employment income tax return to get from 39 to 40. But for getting from 30 to 32 or from 40 to 45, it's not going to increase your benefit all that significantly much. Um, I'm kind of looking through the questions now. Um, so there's no voluntary contributions. Um, if you do make, if you do make quest, if you're starting to take your social security at 66 and you're still paying in, um, every year you pay in, we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at, do those new earnings increase your benefits? So yes, every year we'll go in and say, yes, you're fraud, but you made the maximum. Every year we will increase your benefits. And then we will also use that to determine if your WEP calculation needs to be adjusted to. Um, there's a question, is there a minimum age when your work record applies to Social Security credits? And the answer that's no. If you pay into Social Security, you can get credits if you're a model for Gerber. You know, so if they're putting you on bottles and they're paying you wages and they're withholding FICA tax at the age of zero, 
you can get social security credit then. So things like high school jobs do count. The one thing I caution you though is a lot of jobs like at college don't. So, you know, they don't, there's exemptions for that, but you know, age zero to when, age zero to 100, you can get, um, you can get social security credits. There's a question given the relatively lower government pensions in the UK. I'm curious as to why we are penalized for more than the amount we get in the UK. You will never be penalized for any more than half of what that other pension is. So the windfall elimination provision does have a requirement that we cannot offset you by any more than half of what that non-covered pension is. And that can be a government pension, it can be a private pension. In America, if you're a civil service employee who doesn't pay into social security, it's any pension that doesn't pay into social security subject to WEP, but it can never be more than half of what that pension is converted at the time of entitlement or at the time of pension in US dollars. Um, for Medicare entitlement, DWP quarters do not apply. Um, they have to be 40 US quarters. Just scrolling down, I'll take a couple more of these. You can't, and uh, if I have 40 quarters paying in the US and 15 in the UK, can you push the record, the earnings from UK to US or vice versa? The answer to that is no. Um, question is, what is the best way to apply for social security within the UK? I do have an SS online account, so FBU or online. Right now, I will tell you the best thing to do is to contact the FBU and to set up a benefit appointment. Um, the online accounts claims, all of them get pushed to the FBU anyway, so the best thing to do is to contact FBU. One of the nice, you know, we are all working from home during this time of lockdown, which has really been great. Um, if you ever dealt with the FBU, maybe it took you 30 days or 60 days to get a response by email. We are 100% current on our emails because we have a little bit more time to work them. So if you send us an email today, I, I'm pretty sure you're going to hear something back um, within a week. Um, if I keep working after I begin taking Social Security at 70, the amount will just go up, 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 and up. Um, somebody asked about citizenship. You can get your U.S. Social Security if you live in the U.K. We do not care if you're a citizen or not. Um, for somebody asked a very specific question about what you report for WEP to Social Security, and I'm not gonna talk to that question as it relates to your UK old age pension. That's something that when we take your claim, we will have a detailed conversation to help you figure that out. But you're gonna report to us the full amount. We're gonna plug it through the calculator where the 50% amount comes off. And if, if it matters for the amount, we're gonna need to see your pension letter from the UK. So we'll have a conversation and we'll sort through that together. Um, the social security statement, I would say it's very accurate, um, especially the ones that you do yourself. Um, the ones that you get in the mail, be careful because it makes assumptions about how long you're continuing to work. You know, so if you were working and stopped, that could be wrong, but it's, I, I think they're very accurate for what they do and they do walk you through the formula. The one thing I would say though, is the social security statement that you get in the mail does not have anything for web. It has a sentence in there it says wet may apply but it, it doesn't do the calculations for you there's a question about payments we we can have it go into your u.s bank account we can have it go into your uk bank account that is your choice in the u.s if they have a routing number and account number that's perfectly fine here sort code you know swift code and account number that's fine if you do get it paid in the uk it is converted to pounds at a very favorable conversion rate 
there's not a buy sell rate. The treasury sends it at what the actual exchange rate is on the third of the month. Um, can my US amount be reduced by a corresponding amount I might get from UK Social Security? Potentially under WEP, but potentially not. So that's going to be a case specific thing. And then we asked, somebody asked, can they get ex-spouses benefits? Yes, but I'm gonna talk about that on the next slide. So I think that gets us current on retirement, but this won't be our only bite at the apple. So Dave, I think we'll move on to the next set of benefits. We'll I have a, ask a question that a client had um, recently was that when they got their paper statement, they noticed that for one of the years, it was 10 years ago or so, there was no uh, number for money paid into Social Security, or there's no income for the year that was listed. And he's, he was able to get a, a pay stub and a tax re return. Can you go back and amend your Social Security history? Are, are you limited to a couple of years uh, to correct a mistake? Um, I'm sure you guys don't make many of them, but if there is one that you can... Uh, no, you know, it's, it, it's a really good question. And for W-2 earnings, if you go back and you see a mistake where there was a W-2 missing from 30 years ago, if you have the W-2, it's pretty easy to add. So Dave raises a good point. When you get your social security statement, I would encourage everybody to eyeball it and make sure that it's correct. And if you see a gap, fix it right away. You know, even if you get the statement when you're 55 and you see a gap from three years ago, it's going to be a lot easier to fix now because you probably have the record. So when you get it, if you see a gap, let us know. But if it's W-2, there's no statute of limitations, we're going to give you credit for it. For self-employment earnings, it's a little bit trickier because the evidence that we need to see, we have to see like your self-employment return, proof that you paid it like a canceled check. And that is something where you do have to do it inside of the IRS's statute of limitations. So you have to do it in, I think it's uh, three years, three months, and 15 days. So amending a self-employment return is trickier. W-2 is very straightforward. That answer the question? Yeah, that's perfect. Thank hey, you. Very much. And Jack, one quick easy one, I think, uh, before you move on. This came in late from uh, one of the attendees. Uh, to set up my social security account on the SSI website, it seems you need a U.S. address. Is there any harm in putting down a friend or relative's U.S. address with their permission? I have no issue with that. And it's not an, it's not an address that's going to stay on a record. So the IRS isn't going to grab that address and say, you know, aha, you live in Pennsylvania. You can use whatever address, but it does have to be a good mailing address of somebody that you trust because there is going to be a letter sent to that address kind of with the last code that you need to start the process. So, you know, don't just send it to like the last address you lived at. Make sure the person knows that the mail's coming and then I, there's no issue with that at all. Great, thank you. Yep. And we'll come back. There'll be questions because when we put you know, topic one retirement and other benefits and Medicare together, there'll be some questions that come up. So let's talk about other, be oh, I went too far. Other social security benefits. And I give speeches um, all around the world. This is probably the thing that drops the most jaws. And that's because US social security is a lot different than other social insurance programs around the world. But we will pay other people social security benefits based on your work. So if one person worked in the US, their spouse could potentially get benefits, their children could get benefits, um, you know, divorced spouses can get benefits. There's a whole raft of other people who can get benefits. 
and, and to a degree, that's kind of counterintuitive because our social insurance system in the U.S. is different. You kind of think, you know, just from what you know, that it would be less. But this is one instance where Social Security pays more benefits than people are aware of. And if, if I had to guess, things like spouses' benefits and widows' benefits and widowers' benefits, they're probably pretty commonly missed for people that live outside of the United States. So I want to talk about disability benefits first. And I'm going to make this very short because the meat's really in what I'm going to talk about next. But Social Security does have a disability benefit, but it's pretty restrictive. Um, you have to have a disability that's expected to last one year or more or result in death, so like a terminal illness, and it has to stop you from engaging in what we call any type of substantial gainful activity. So Social Security doesn't have a partial disability benefit. It's you're either 100% disabled or you're not. Um, and what I would tell you is, is if you have a disability that makes you unable to work, reach out to the Federal Benefits Unit or Social Security and say, ask us, this, you know, I, I know there's disability benefits, am I eligible? I don't want to give a lot more guidance than that because every disability is so specific, but the things to keep in mind, it's a long-term disability, has to last a year or more, or be a terminal illness or, you know, something like that, and it has to be a 100% disability. So the way to look at it is, a badly broken arm that's going to recover in nine months isn't a social security disability um, or something, you know, where, you know, where you could do another job, but you can't do your current job. So a person maybe loses a hand, a young person loses a hand in an injury. They can't do the job they're doing, but can they do another job? So it's kind of a 100% disability benefit and it's got to be extended. I don't give you those caveats to be discouraging, but I would just say, as you look at social security disability, long-term disability and kind of a 100% disability would be the way to look at it. Um, next, I'm gonna talk, and we, if there's questions about that, when we stop at the end of the slide, you know, please feel free to jump in. Um, I do wanna talk about spouses benefits, and I'm gonna talk about two groups of people, um, and one of the things that I want you to think of Social Security as concept is that Social Security is not a pension. So it's not something where if you pay in, you get a payment out. The way to think of Social Security is that it's an insurance program. You're paying your insurance premiums, and when the time comes that one of those insurable events comes, there's payment for you. And so the things that are insurable events are your retirement, you're being insured for retirement, but you're also being insured, it's a life insurance benefit. So it's a life insurance benefit for people who die when they're relatively young, but it's also a life insurance benefit for people who die when they're older. And that life insurance benefit is paid out to their beneficiaries. And we'll talk about that in a second, but I want you to think of it as younger people can get social security benefits and older people can get social security benefits. And then it's also disability benefits. Once a person gets retirement benefits or disability benefits, lots of people become eligible to get benefits at the same concurrent time that they are getting benefits. And I'm going to call those auxiliary benefits, but just think of them as life benefits. In a second, or when we're done with that, I'll talk about survivor's benefits. So if I'm a person that lived and worked in the United States, and I moved to the UK, and then I, I met my partner here in the UK and I got married, 
when my, if I'm getting social security benefits, when my partner reaches 62 or older, he or she might also be eligible for social security benefits. And it's money above and beyond what you already would have gotten. It's extra money. Um, and it doesn't matter if they're a US citizen, doesn't matter if they ever worked in the US, it's money that's out there for them at that point in time. Another group of people that can get benefits while I'm getting my social security retirement or disability benefits are ex-spouses. Um, if I was married to somebody, if somebody was married to me for 10 years or more and they're not married at the time they're filing the application, there's potentially divorced spouses benefits there for them too. And that goes both ways. So if you have a divorced spouse who lived and worked in the US or maybe even get, or did for a longer time, you're eligible for those benefits on their record as well. The other group of people that's eligible for benefits are children. If you have a child who's 18 or older at the time that you retire or file for disability benefits, that those children can get benefits all the way up until the time they're 18. We will extend that until they are 19 if they're still in um, secondary school. Or if you have a child who became disabled before the age of 22, but is disabled as an adult. And the example I use there is if you have a child with Down syndrome, you've had the child since you were in your 30s, when you turn 62 and start becoming eligible for retirement benefits, it's possible that that child who's had a lifelong disability also becomes eligible for benefits at that point in time too. Um, so spouses benefits are a lot and there's a lot more than what's on this PowerPoint slide. But the thing I want you to take away from that is if you have any questions ask, and I'll tell you the ones that we miss the most, or not that we miss because we can't do anything about it, but that the beneficiaries miss, is if in a traditional situation where maybe the man is five years older than his wife, he files for social security benefits at 62. He gets his $1,500 a month, but at that time his wife was 57 years old. Five years later, you know, the wife turns 62 and nobody thinks at all about that spouse being eligible for social security benefits. So in a lot of instances, we will miss the younger spouse. And there's lots of information at socialsecurity.gov about spouses benefits, but it's more liberal than you might think. And it's going to pay out way more people than you think. So as the last bullet says, when in doubt, ask. Um, same thing applies for children. So that's kind of a snapshot of who can get benefits while I'm alive and getting benefits. But now let's talk a little bit about what if something happens to me and I die. And I'm going to talk about, about Can I ask a question real quick? Um, yeah, go ahead. So you, on, when you're given the example, you said that spouses could get, um, uh, well, if non-U.S. or someone that's never uh, worked in the U.S. can get spousal benefits. I just want to make sure, in, for a point of clarity, they also never had to have resided in the, in the U.S. as well. In the U.K., they sure don't. It, it for, because of that larger overarching totalization agreement, any U.K. resident, citizen, spouse doesn't have to have had it before. They don't even have to have a social security number prior to when filing for benefits. And a good example for that is the person who comes out, works at Lake and Heath, meets his wife, falls in love, and they stay in the UK forever, that Lake and Heath wife is going to be eligible for social security benefits. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, anything else, Dave, or are we good? 
Oh, let's carry on. Thank you very much. Okay. So now we're going to talk about what happens when I die. And for these examples, I'm going to use kind of traditional examples. But I want you to know it doesn't have to be traditional at all. But I'm going to talk about what happens if I die when I am in my 40s and I have children. And then I'm going to talk about what happens when I die if I'm in my 80s. Also for these examples, I'm going to have it be the, the male household member that passes away. All these things I'm telling you go both ways. So, you know, if it's the woman who worked in the U.S. It's, and the man's the widower, all these things go both ways. And then the other thing I want to say is all these things also apply to same-sex marriages. So while I'll be speaking from kind of generic traditional examples for clarity, all these things apply to any marriage and any spouse and gender it does not matter at all. So when we get to questions, I can kind of clarify that, but it really is as straightforward as that as it relates to these things. So let's talk about the person who dies when they are 40. If they die when they are 40, those kids become eligible for survivor's benefits at the point in time that that happens. And the mother who is taking care of the children also becomes potentially eligible. If there are other kids that are out there in different families and different households, they become eligible and potentially other mothers that were out there become eligible too. Now, it's a lot more complicated than that, but I say that that it's a pretty wide net that's gonna be caught by that. Um, what I, I, what I would tell you is, is if you know somebody who passed away when they were 40 in this example, and like you're their neighbor or you're their cousin or their uncle, and you know that, one, that the person maybe worked in the United States, you need to make sure that the surviving family is aware that these benefits exist in the United States. Because I think what happens here is we don't have the same type of benefits in the United Kingdom, not tied through Social Security or, or DWP and the other European countries, this thought never enters anybody's mind. So if you're aware of somebody who's died at a young age and they left behind a family and they came from the US or they worked in the US, it's just something to be aware of. Um, and to give you an example, a starting out point for those children, now there's a family cap on this, but if there's only one child, for example, they're gonna get 75% per month of what the unreduced um, parents benefit was. You know, so they could get you know, as much as like $1,500, $2,000 a month in ongoing social security benefits. So it's a lot of money that's needed kind of at that time. That's kind of a thumbnail sketch of young survivors benefits. And now I'm gonna move on to older survivors benefits because this is gonna be more applicable and it's also probably a lot more confusing. First things first is for regular social security, I said you had to be eligible at 62. If you're a widow or widower, we're going to move those ages down. You become eligible for regular widows or widowers benefits at 60. So where I'm telling you to wait till you're 62 for retirement, if you had a spouse who maybe died when you were in your 50s, at 60, you become potentially eligible for widow's benefits. Now, it's going to be reduced. We have the same reduction choices that we had for um, retirement benefits. Although we're not going to go, you know, you can take it at 60 and you're not going to want to wait much more than your full retirement age because there's not delayed retirement credits, but eligibility starts at 60. Additionally, eligibility, if you are disabled, starts as early as 50. So those widow's benefits are going to be there potentially for you at a much younger age than retirement benefits. Um, once again, 
you know, to use my Lake and Heath example, the person who's in the military, who's a US citizen, resident, who's fully insured for social security, if they pass away when they're both in their 50s, at 60, the UK resident spouse becomes eligible for widow's benefits. Um, same thing applies to divorced, what we call surviving, surviving divorced spouses. So if there is somebody who was married for 10 years, you know, out in the community, they're potentially eligible. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about remarriage in a second. So lots of people can get these widow's benefits or surviving divorced spouses benefits. Um, one of the questions that was submitted in advance is, does remarriage have an effect on those benefits? If you're getting widow's benefits because you were married to your spouse when they passed away, if you remarry after the age of 60, it does not have any effect on your social security benefits. So to use an example, um, my wife and I are married, 55, one of us passes away. Years go on, at 65, she decides to remarry. She can get widow's benefits. If she was getting them at 60, fine. If she was putting off getting them, she can still get the widow's benefits as long as the remarriage was after 60. And the idea behind this is like 30, 40 years ago, this was where people had the concept of the US government making people live in sin. This was added to social security to allow people in this situation to remarry. Surviving divorce spouses are different. If they remarry, they lose their benefits. So if, if, you know, if I died at 55 and I had a spouse between 20 and 30, when that spouse hits 60, if she's unmarried, she can get benefits, but remarriage does affect that surviving divorce spouse for the um, perpetuity of their benefits. And just the last bit about that is children, um, those children's benefits matter and are paid at every age. So if it's somebody who's had a family when they were in their 80s and they have young children and they die, those children are just as eligible as the person who died when they're in their 20s or their 30s. Um, so that's kind of a awkward overview of survivors' benefits and spouses' benefits. But everything I say there, and if you're at home and you're more confused than when you started, I think that's okay. The real takeaway on that is when in doubt, ask. You know, send us an email and kind of let's go over it. And Dave, I think this is a good time. We'll kind of go through some questions. And as I pull them up, I mean, are there any that come to mind for you? Um, well, there was someone that asked about um, being uh, having an EU passport. But if they're, my, my guess is that if they're living and working here and paying UK taxes and UK national insurance, then, then they would benefit from the totalization agreement and the fact that they have a maybe a continental passport that doesn't, that's irrelevant. Yeah, it's interesting. For so, a lot of things, government, all this type of stuff can matter. But for Social Security, if you're living in the UK, it's really pretty portable in the sense that we're not going to care too much about your citizenship, where you've lived or where you've lived for how long. Um, there are some instances where there are some tax implications that come into that. But as far as establishing entitlement and being eligible for money, Things like passports don't matter. If you're a UK resident and you're a widow and you're a UK citizen, you're going to get paid. And, and that's not everywhere around the world. So like in Kenya, if you're a Kenyan citizen, you know, a Kenyan citizen, Kenyan resident, and your spouse dies, you don't get paid. But because the US has this reciprocal agreement with the United Kingdom and pretty much every other European country as well, the residency thing for survivors doesn't matter. 
Hey, Jack, yeah. here's, here's one. Someone asked, when you say children uh, regarding uh, social, social security survivor benefits, do you mean only under the age of 18 at the time of death? Uh, ch ch children under 18, if the parent were to die, I think is what the question meant. So the children, a couple things, it's a good question. So at the point of entitlement, so it can be retirement benefits. So if I'm 62 and I have children that are under 18, in life cases, they get benefits too. Um, and, and that will kind of, that can change your calculus on if you want to wait, right? So if you have children in your, your full retirement age and you're inclined to wait till you were 70, understand that you're turning back three or four years of children's checks at the same time. So children's benefits applies to retirement benefits. For death cases, the earliest somebody can get them is the month of death. So it's somebody that's 18 or under or 19 or under if they're still in high school or somebody who has been disabled since before the age of 22. Does that make sense, Kyle? It does. Um, and on the back of that, uh, another one is, if you are divorced from a U.S. citizen with entitlement to their retirement benefits, can you claim uh, the ex-spouse's retirement benefits if you are remarried? Uh, no. So for the life cases where the, that person's alive, and really for the death cases too, for the divorced spouse, if you're remarried, you've lost that entitlement during the time that you're remarried. Now, if that subsequent marriage ends, that's something to look into. So if you were married to somebody between 20 and 40, you were divorced, and then you remarried like a UK citizen at 50, and you're remarried to them now, right now you're not eligible for benefits. But if that UK spouse passes away before you do, like let's say maybe they die when they're 80, at that point in time, you need to look in to see if you can get divorced spouse's benefits on that first spouse's record. That's interesting. Um, can we take the, your traditional example, uh, Jack, and, and flip it around where the, the non-resident alien spouse gets to the retirement age before the um, U.S. citizen? Mm -hmm. what, do they have to wait until the U.S. citizen hits 62 or, their, or full retirement age, or can they file... Um, while their spouse is still in their 50s, perhaps? If they're currently married, well, if they're currently married, they have to wait for the spouse to get benefits. So the spouse has to be not just 62, they have to be 62 or older and actively getting benefits if they're still married. If they're divorced, the divorced spouse can file when the spouse that they divorced turns 62. So in life, the Traditional example, the husband has to be filing to get benefits, and then the spouse that they're married to, so long as they're 62 or older, can get benefits too. In divorce, the divorce spouse, let's say the divorce spouse, let's say they're both 62, the divorce spouse can file on the spouse's record even if he has decided not to take his benefits yet. And the idea behind that is the divorce spouse doesn't live in the same household as the person, so they shouldn't be reliant on them filing, and I'll tell you what happens. There are people, and this is a traditional example, but this is the only where I've seen it, men who will not file for Social Security because they think they are spiting their ex-wife. And in that instance, that doesn't work. The spouse can take it at 62, even if the person declines to take it. The other thing about ex-spouse's benefits that's worth noting is if an ex-spouse gets benefits on a person's record, it has absolutely no impact on anybody else on the record. 
It doesn't affect the person who worked. It doesn't affect their current spouse and it doesn't affect any other children. So an ex-spouse who takes social security benefits is not taking money away from anybody else in any context. And I'll tell you, I've had ex-spouses who didn't want to affect the person, you know, they were married to, they were on good terms. And I've had people that are divorced saying, I don't want that ex-spouse taking my money. It's absolutely benefit neutral for the current family and current spouse. Okay, a lot of the questions are um, themes of uh, questions that have already been asked. So I think you're, you're free to keep going. Okay. Yeah, and for the sake of time, Jack, I think we should get to the next section and we'll just uh, answer the rest of the questions at the end so we can get through everything. Yeah, perfect. So let's talk about Medicare. Um, and Medicare is complex. And I think it's, if it is you're an expat, I think it's really the hardest thing to make decisions on. So um, you come eligible for Medicare under one of three ways. I'm going to touch on two and then just forget about them. If you've been on disability for two years, if you're on end-stage renal disease, so you're getting dialysis, but we won't worry about Medicare for them. For yourself, you become eligible for Medicare at 65. That's a little bit awkward in the sense that a lot of people are full retirement age is 66 or later, but Medicare, you become eligible for at 65. Same thing for your spouse. The other eligibility requirement is, is that you or the spouse whose record you're getting benefits on has to have those 40 quarters of coverage. So the totalization agreement's not going to help you there. Um, so if you've worked for 30, one of the questions we got in advance was I have 39 quarters of coverage and asked about Medicare. For that person, and if you're looking at moving back to the United States and you want Medicare, getting that 40th quarter is paramount. I mean, it's the difference between getting Medicare Part A that the government pays for or Medicare Part A that you're paying out of pocket to the tune of something north of $300 a month. So the difference between 39 and 40 is humongous for Medicare. The other thing about Medicare is it comes essentially in two parts, Part A and Part B. Um, part A is what's called hospital insurance and it's the hospitalization cost to being hospitalized. So if you go to the hospital, that's what Part A pays for. Part B is called supplemental medical insurance and it pays for outpatient doctors, therapies, all that other type of stuff that you're necessarily going to need. Together, they represent a pretty comprehensive health insurance plan. Part A, if you have your 40 quarters of coverage, doesn't cost you a nickel, you get it. And your premiums are based on what you've paid into uh, FICA taxes all the way along the line. No matter what, you wanna file for Part A at 65. Um, and, you know, even if you're planning on waiting until 66 or 70 for your regular Social Security, you want to file that Part A application with the Federal Benefits Unit or online, just like you're filing a regular retirement benefit application. And there's no reason not to take Part A. Things get complicated at Part B. Part B, you have to pay a monthly premium, and that can be $140 a month, but it can be much more than that based on your income. Now, the challenge with Medicare is Medicare only pays medical expenses in the United States. So anything that comes up, it's not a travel insurance policy. If you get hurt or need medical care in Brazil or Mexico or, some, or while even coming up in the EU, it's not going to do anything for you there. So the calculus is, as you reach retirement age, is do you think that you're going to want to return to the United States 
And are you going to need medical coverage when you're there? And that's a very personal decision and it's complicated. And the Medicare sign-up rules don't make it easy. Um, and, they don't, and they make it so that it's uh, the decision that you make at 66, well, 65, while it's not permanent, signing up later can be really, really difficult. So what I would tell people as you're in your 50s or 40s or early 60s to think of Part B is, if you're coming up on 60, 65 and you think that you might be going back to the United States for your retirement, you need to look, take a hard look at signing up for Part B. If you think you're not ever going to return to the United States, then you don't need to really think about Part B at all. A um, couple things that make it even a little bit more complicated, and you know, the thing I'm going to tell you on all of this is there's nothing I can tell you on the webinar that's going to perfectly fit your challenge on this, is um, can you wait past 65? And the answer to that is yes. There's what's called a special enrollment period. And that's a term, if you think what I'm going to describe applies to you, you're going to want to research on your own. But what the special enrollment period says is that if you're 65 and you are still actively working and covered under an employer group health plan because of that work, you can wait until you stop working to sign up for Part B of Medicare. And at that point in time, you have a window of, um, I think, six months, I think, where you can sign up for it. Now, how do you reconcile that with public health and NHS in the UK? The way we look at that is, is that if you are in the UK and covered by NHS and still actively working, either you or your spouse, in those instances, we're going to say that you are eligible for a special enrollment period. So we're gonna call your NHS coverage employer-related health coverage. So that's how we kind of reconcile those two pieces. So if you're here at 65 and you're still actively working, you don't have to take Part B at that time. When you stop working, you're gonna to wanna to sign up for Part B right away to make sure that your premiums are as low as possible and that you can get it as soon as possible. Now, if you are 65 and living in the UK and you don't have any plans of going back to the United States until you're 70, and so you're saying, I don't wanna sign up for Part B, you're rolling the dice because the special enrollment period doesn't apply to you unless you're actively working or your spouse is actively working. So if you miss your window at 65, what, two things happen. Signing up for Part B later, you can only do it during what's called the general enrollment period, and that's January through March of a year. And when you sign up during the general enrollment period, let's say you sign up on March 30th, the coverage doesn't become effective until July 1st. Um, so, part of what they're doing is kind of like car insurance. We don't want you buying health insurance at the time you have a car accident. It's set up to say you got to sign up during the general enrollment period and it becomes effective July 1st. The other thing is there's going to be a 10% penalty on your premiums for every year between 65 and when you signed up for your uh, Medicare that you're going to have to carry in perpetuity. And so that makes it, that makes it a complicated decision. And those are the stakes of not doing it. But think about this. Here's the worst case scenario. Let's say you're at home on May 1st and you've decided, you know, circumstances have changed. Maybe I have an elderly parent. You know, maybe I have kids that have moved to the U.S. And you're, 60, you're 69 years old and you're sitting here on April 30th and saying, you know, I do want to move to America. If you want to sign up for Part B of Medicare during the general enrollment period, 
it's not going to be effective until July of 2021 because you're going to have to wait all the way until January to March of 2021 to sign up for March for July of 2021. So the stakes are really high on when to sign up for Part B of Medicare. Part A, no matter what, you're going to want to do it at 65. If you miss the 65 window, though, it doesn't have these same restrictive enrollment periods. Part B, I think it's the trickiest challenge as an expat for somebody considering moving to the United States after their 65th birthday has to consider. And a lot of it is, you know, when those things come up, asking the FBU for specific guidance, but a lot of it, is, you know, gets into life planning decisions in your early 60s that are going to carry out. Now, any decision you make is not irreversible, but it has potentially high risk circumstances. Um, I have Part C and Part D on the slide because people will hear about Part C and Part D, but don't even think about Part C and Part D while you're living in the UK. Part C is kind of a Medicare process that lets you sign up through like an HMO type process as opposed to general direct bill pay. It's something you can do during enrollment periods in the US, but there's not any penalties or anything to worry about. Part D is prescription drug coverage in the United States. It's an okay program, but it's something that doesn't have the same restrictive enrollment periods as Part B. So I, I'm telling you what Part C and Part D are to tell you essentially not to worry about it. So that's a mouthful on Medicare, and I'm going to kind of open it up for questions here in a second. This touched on basically what we received for questions in advance, but I, the details on that get to be really, really tricky. Um, and so that's kind of Medicare in a nutshell. And, you know, I'll throw it to Dave and Kyle first. What if that made sense or kind of what types of questions come to your mind immediately? Well, there's a, well, I think it's a relatively easy one. The first one we'll do is, is there any way to get part A without having 40 quarters? Um, if it's on a, so if one spouse has 40 quarters, you can get it on the other spouse, on that spouse's record but one of you has to have 40 quarters of coverage. And in this instance, the big age gap is mitigated to a degree. So the spouse that turns 65 can start to take Medicare even if the other spouse who has the 40 quarters of coverage hasn't filed for benefits yet. I, I believe they have to be 62 though. If you have, um, maybe you don't have all 40 quarters, but you have some, can you get Part A and pay for it? You can pay Part A out of pocket. Um, it, or the, the income-related adjustment, or whatever that acronym is, if you're over $85,000. Well, there's, so these are two different things. Part A, you can pay out of pocket, and there's two thresholds. There's an amount for people with 30 quarters, and there's an amount for people with less than 30 quarters. I don't know the amounts off the top of my head. I, I apologize. I believe if you have zero quarters, the amount is north of $300 a month, but I'm not sure. If you go to, if you check um, Medicare website or just Google, Part A premiums, you know, costs out of pocket. And if you want more expensive. Now, you can still sign up for health insurance um, through the um, Affordable Care Act. Now the IRMA part replies more to the Part B premiums, where if your income's over a certain threshold, 85,000, 
your premiums for Part B go up and up and up. But the Part A and Part B, the premium, you know, there's no Part A premiums if you have the 40 quarters of coverage. If you have less, you have the same premiums as everybody else. Okay, good. So it's not, if you don't have it, it's not, it's not over. You can still get it. You just, you might have to, you have to come out of pocket for Part A then. Okay. Yeah, but I would tell you it's, if you're close, it's worth looking at ways to maybe come up with those other quarters, part-time job or self-employment tax returns while you're in the U.S. I mean, while you're in the U.K. that are legally applicable for filing in the U.S. Okay. There's a lot of questions flying in and they're really technical. Yeah. And, and I did. And, and we've got a bunch coming in about Part B, Jack. So might be able to uh, get two with one question here. So uh, if, if we take a situation where someone or, or two people married are in the U.K., one is retired and um, age 67, so retirement age, and the other spouse is 64 and, and still employed. Uh, I guess the first part of the question is, would the husband's current employment allow the other spouse to still, the retired spouse to file for Part B? And then on the back of that, could you just specify what the real risk is um, if you file for Part B at age 65 while still working in the UK? Uh, there's no, okay, so I want to answer the second question first because there's a simple answer to that. You can start filing for Part B anytime you want, even while you're still working. So if you can afford it, you know, if the, the premiums, the $100 you know, to $200 a month coming out of your check does not bother you, you can take it at 65 and you're perfectly fine. So you can sign up for Part B whenever you want and it doesn't matter. Um, the other question, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm going to actually give out at the end, I'm going to give out my personal email address. And if that person can email me, please do, because I'm only about 90% confident in my answer, but it's a pretty weighted question. So I want to check on it uh, tomorrow. So I, I'm going to tell you all my email address when we go and send me this question, or really, if you have any other specific questions, go ahead and send them to me. I'm, I'm on lockdown, so I got time to answer questions right now, but I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not confident with my answer on that one, Kyle. Great, thanks. Dave, did you have one after that or? Um, so, let's see. so do you do you need a US address to sign up for part B is another one. No, it's, it's fine here. I have a neighbor across the hall who has part B, you know, so like if they spend half their time in the US and half their time here, the part B will cover you if something happens there, won't cover you here, but you don't need to use a US address. So can you, here's a question, we can go into the uh, IRMA um, and high level, which is, um, can you talk about the premium penalty for both Part B and D um, for people with higher incomes in the previous two years? Part D, I need, I need to push you to the research on that and to check that on your own. I don't think there's a premium penalty, but I don't know. And, and the reason I say that is Part D has, Almost nobody in the UK has Part D, so I just don't have any experience on the Part D premiums. You're welcome to email me as far as that goes. For the Part B IRMA premiums, we're talking about for super, well, not super, we're talking for very high income earners who it's like, you know, in the $85,000 for a single person, and I think close to double it for a couple of your bottom line income, you know, you every year you will go through a process where you will get a letter saying this is your premium for the upcoming year. Um, if it's the year that you've retired, so maybe you were a very high year earner as far as the US government was concerned, the year you retired, but the next year you're not because you've retired, um, it can be adjusted during the year of. Very specific question is something we would discuss with you on a case-by-case -case basis at the FBU 
either when you're filing your claim or when you contact us about an IRMA notice that you get. Great, uh, another one, and uh, we have time for just a few more. We are getting on to an hour and 15 minutes here, so uh, I'm just gonna pick a few more here. Um, <clears throat> this kind of goes back to Social Security, but just a, a quick one that's easy to answer. Do the 40 quarters requirement for employment have to be all earned in the USA, or can they be split across US and UK? And uh, I, I know there's a difference here between where you're resident and where you're technically employed and paying tax, so maybe you can just speak to that. So it's, it's 40 quarters of coverage where you're either getting a W-2, you know, like a social security, a W-2 for the IRS that says that you paid FICA tax or you're filing a self-employment tax return. And it really just depends on how, what the nature of your employment is. So I work at the U.S. Embassy. Yes, I live here, but I pay social security taxes. If you come over working for a bank or a motor company, Maybe you came out for five years, you were paying FICA tax, but then after that you went on a contract locally. That's all over the place. It really, the bottom line is, are you paying social security tax in the US, either via wages in a W-2 or through a US self-employment tax return? Here's one, um, Jack, if I miss signing up for Medicare Part A at 65, can I apply afterwards? I am 65 in four months. Yeah, that, the Part A missing, that's not a big deal. Um, what is the disadvantage or danger of applying for Part B if you're, if you're 65 and still working in the UK? There's no danger. You're just paying premiums, so right? Paying so if you're still working, yeah. if you're still working, you're paying premiums that you don't have to work. If you're, but if you're working, the, sub, the special enrollment period is not a difficult thing to do. So if, you're, if it's 65, you have a job and you're going to work till you're 68, it's going to cost you thousands and thousands of dollars but it's fine if you don't mind paying it. But if you want to wait till you're 68 and you're going to retire all at once, getting that special enrollment period, it can be done before you retire. And it really is very straightforward and we can do it in the FBU without any issue. And um, do you happen to know if you sign up for Medicare at the embassy, can you do it online? What's the facility for that? So there's two ways to sign up for Medicare. If you're doing it for the first time, like you've never gotten any social security benefits or anything, you can do it either through a telephone conversation with the FBU or you can do it online. My recommendation is to do it at the FBU. It's actually going to do it on a telephone conversation with the FBU. It's going to be a lot more efficient. Um, so if you've never gotten any benefits, you're kind of filing like an initial claim. If you're already getting cash benefits, um, you're going to need to do that with the FBU with paperwork that we can like email to you and you you mail us back and that will be done on a case by case basis. Okay. Here's, I have one, I'm being mindful of the time, but here's one I think that a lot of people probably have in the back of their minds is that for an elderly couple permanently living in the UK, does part A effectively cover us for occasional travel to the US? Some UK insurers won't cover travel to the US over a certain age. Yes, but remember, Part A by itself is not a whole health insurance program. It's the hospital. It's hospitalization. Even in a hospitalization visit, um, there could be things that apply to Part B. But yes, your Part A works as long as you are legally in the U.S. at the time you're there. Part A will cover you. So if if something catastrophic happens and you're hospitalized, that Part A is going to cover a lot. Okay, I, and just I think we are about to hit our time. But this final question, I think, will transition well into your your last 
slide, Jack. Uh, does phoning the FBU work during this lockdown period? And I guess what's the best way to get in touch just one last time for all the attendees on the call? Yeah, so the answer is no. We did have to turn off our phones. Um, it's interesting. Of all the people, I'll, I'll make this a short digression. Of all the places at the embassy, the social security people, we are 100% working remotely, which is really quite amazing. We have full access to databases and everything that we're doing, but we can't transfer phone calls. So if you want to contact us, and I have the next slide up, email fbu.london at ssa.gov. We've not always been great at emails, but right now we're on top of them. So I'm telling you, if you email us, um, go ahead and do it, and we'll um, you'll probably get a reply back within seven days. Um, if you live in another country, there's that web address that would let, if you go to that web address, it will tell you the federal benefits unit that serves you to email. Um, and I'm going to do this really quick. Hold on. I'm going to here. And you all can, you can still see my screen, right, Kyle? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to type in my personal email address. Ah, UK computer, hold on. Well, whatever the at sign is, I, I, I'm using my wife's computer. Let me see if I figured it out. Ah, okay. So that is my personal email address. The last name capitalization doesn't matter. Um, as I said, it's a good time to get help because um, I'm here cooped up with the four-year-old and seven-year-old. The more work you throw me, the more of that I can push onto my wife. Um, so if you have any questions from this or any questions in general, give me a call. And if it necessitates a phone call, I'll give you a call. Um, kind of after the honeymoon period from this webinar, you know, contact the fbu.london at ssa.gov. Um, but we're here to help. And, you know, Kyle, that's the end of my presentation. I want to, you know, thank um, Kyle and, um, and, uh, and, and Dave. Thank you all for joining me. You know, I, hopefully we answered a lot of questions and I'll kind of turn it back to you guys. Yeah, thank you, Jack. That was that was extremely, extremely uh, helpful and a really good presentation. I, I think a lot of people, we have a ton of questions. So for those who did not get your questions answered, please uh, feel free to reach out to Jack and also feel free to reach out to uh, Tanager, either 